Hi everyone, I'm Dalen, founder and design educator at Curious Core. Welcome to our Working in UX Design podcast series, where we interview a UX design leader in the industry on their experience in this emerging field. We've had UX professionals from Grab, AirAsia, Google, and more join us previously, and we're bringing you more exciting interviews this year. Stay tuned for this week's interview with our special guest, who is working in UX design. So, a very good evening to all of you over here tonight.、Uh, welcome to Curious Core's weekly webinar, and we are here tonight with、uh, Jian Ko from TripAdvisor, and we are going to have a deep dive into research practices in the global markets. We are going to talk specifically about user experience research. We're going to speak about her experience changing careers as an advertising planner into research, and at the same time, we're going to talk about certain practices and basics that you need to have as a junior UX research person or even as a product manager. Once again,、uh, tonight、uh, we're very lucky to have Jian share her experiences. So maybe Jian, let's start with your current role. At TripAdvisor, tell us a little bit about what you do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah,、um, I think on a day-to-day, it's actually easier to say what I do on a week-to-week basis because、sure. I'm part of a product team, so our cadence is kind of on a week basis. So every Thursday night, I have catch-ups with the greater product team, and then Tuesday and Thursday mornings, I have catch-ups with my core product team to see what's the updates on you know research, design, and any other sites. So I think the work is kind of structured around that. In my day to day, I can be doing things such as planning the research,、um, like or setting it up. I can be working closely with the designer. For example, if it's an exploratory phase, to brainstorm new features to test, whether through like concept testing or through a survey or prototype testing as well. I could be analyzing the results,、um, speaking to stakeholders, and then like reporting it and sharing it back. I think what I also do is I think I'm quite collaborative in nature. That means in terms of like gathering data, I would ask you know the data people what they know, or ask maybe、um, some of the people who've worked on it on their previous research and their take on it. And for the report as well, I would give a sense check with my designers to see like does this make sense and to help refine the story, because I think maybe what is interesting to me as a researcher might be the nuts and bolts, but they're more they might be interested in something else or something could be more actionable for them. Yeah, I think I also do have a lot of like one-on-one、uh, catch-ups over coffee with my PMs, especially to find out like you know what their needs are, fellow researchers and my team. So yeah, that's my life as a researcher. It's really much depending on the phase of the project. Yeah. Hmm. So you spoke about、uh, working at TripAdvisor and your design team being based in TripAdvisor. So for the Asia Pacific、uh, design team for TripAdvisor,、uh, how many markets do you cover, and which are some of the markets that you cover? Oh,、um, I think for that because right now we've structured the portfolio such that me and my other two designers in Singapore are actually working on global product. So that means we're not only looking at、um, the you know APAC markets or global markets, for example. We're looking at like the core product. We do have our market prioritization that we have refined last year and this year, which APAC has taken the lead to make on. But I don't think I should share like you know <laughs> which are the key markets or how many markets it is.、Um, what I'll say is that 
TripAdvisor is a very international company, um, but we are quite more like American-centric. So I think what the APAC office can offer is, um, you know, bringing a different perspective based on the competitors that we see or have a different perspective on maybe even from a research point of view, like how some things might translate into different markets. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. And I think uh, for the benefit of some people here who are a little bit new to the UX design industry, you know, what is the difference between a UX researcher and a UX designer? Like, what do they do differently? Like, why, why is there a specialized UX researcher? Yeah. I think when I was in advertising of his side note, creative director said it best of what a strategic planner is. He said a strategic planner is a creative who cannot draw or who cannot write. <laughs> and I think that sums it up. Like, you know, as a UX researcher, I do know the basics of UX practices, but at most I can draw on pen and paper, but I'm not really good at actually sketching it out. But it is my job to know, for example, you know, what's information architecture, what's um, like, you know, wireframes and the nuts and bolts of that. The value that I provide is making sure that what we create connects to what people want. So in the usual design thinking speak, there's that three concentric circles of is it desirable, is it viable, and is it feasible? Desirable, like do users want it? Viable, um, does it make money? Feasible, can engineering make it? So my job is to make sure that we put is it desirable first to make sure that users want it in the first place, that they find it desirable, that they have utility in using it, and that they are able to use it. Otherwise, we're going to create something that has no value. For example, the Segway, when it first came out, it was like, wow, you know, such a great innovation, but we're Segways now. It's only used for like certain events in Sentosa for fun because it's not a usable product versus an e-scooter. Um, so yeah, my job is to make sure that what we do is number one, like is based on what users actually want. And the exciting thing about that and how it relates to exploratory research is that because I see what users want and what they need, I might be able to find opportunities that are not currently here based on how users are hacking things together. Yep. Mm. So okay. yeah, that's what I do. I, I understand users. Yeah. I know UX design, but I cannot draw. Thanks for sharing. Uh, we have our first question for tonight. So I'm just going to surface the question. Thanks, Michael, uh, for asking. Have you had to work remotely because of the pandemic? If yes, how has that changed your approach to research? Mm. Yeah, so we're talking about remote research here. Okay. Uh, I think thankfully my research team has a good setup of the tools that allow us to work remotely. For example, we use usertesting.com a lot which allows us to use both remote unmoderated as well as remote moderated tests. And this can be either usability tests or they can be interviews. And so we have like prepaid that and we have that arrangement. It has been a lot easier to still continue using it. I think the challenge from more of a COVID thing is a budget perspective. Um, because budgets have been slashed, that would mean that more expense-heavy research, such as recruiting for face-to-face -face interviews, uh, recruiting for uh, quantitative um, surveys, those, you know, is essentially like nothing for maybe a long period of time, but we had to rely on more remote means through usertesting.com. So again, I'm really thankful we have usertesting.com. You can find your equivalent tools. There's also user Zoom and other ones that allows you to do remote testing. Yeah. 
Yeah, so have you actually been working remotely before COVID? Or has this been something that caught your team by surprise? I think I remember the result, the announcement came to work from home right after our team had a Happy Friday session of karaoke. So it's like <laughs> a high of having fun together, then like, okay, we're not seeing each other. Um, but so with my own direct team, we haven't had that chance to work remotely. But mm. since I work a lot with HQ, which means a lot of night calls um, or a lot of morning calls, I think mm. um, TripAdvisor does have a good setup with Slack, with our video conferencing to work remotely as well. We were speaking about how it is a responsibility for a user researcher to bring in insights and wisdom. So can you maybe share a little bit about what constitutes an insight and what, what is wisdom in, in this case? You know, it's funny that you said it's a responsibility of a UX researcher. I would kindly disagree mm. with that. I would say oh, that okay. it's... <laughs> Go, I would say that it. it's the role of the UX researcher to mm. help to craft insight and wisdom, but mm. everyone has the responsibility to care about who your product actually goes to, who's buying your product, who uses your product at the mm. end of the day. So maybe it's just like role versus responsibility thing. And I guess it goes to what we were talking about yesterday about like how data versus knowledge versus insight versus wisdom. Right? I think the role of a researcher or a, strateg a strategist is to actually help to piece together the puzzles to say, you know, like what is salient, what are the core themes, or like what is the overall like mental map, and then what's the way forward. And I think it's quite a luxury <laughs> for me actually, for someone to be so curious to get paid to, you know, be capable and, and to like, you know, bring things together and make sense of things. I think you can see the bits about decision and risk. I think mm. the, the point of research is and why we synthesize things to a level of insight and wisdom is that with information, you still don't know what you, you do. You can, might have information paralysis. You have like bits of data floating everywhere, but you're like, so what? Um, but when you're at the level of like knowledge where it's synthesized, you can make sense of things and you can start to see meaning or patterns about it. I think an example is, um, for example, if you have... In TripAdvisor, we have a segmentation, and with that segmentation, I'm then able to look at certain behavior and say like, oh, that falls into this segment A, or this falls into this other segment. And then I can layer on top of a behavioral segment of like how they use a certain product feature, and then it gives me a lot more area to understand it and to repeat the knowledge that I'm able to look at a certain pattern and immediately like sync it up into where that might fit in the mental map. So I think that's mm. the area of knowledge. Um, oh no, but maybe it's called wisdom because it's a patterns. But then I think mm. the bit about wisdom is like having the core thing to say like, okay, if this is your framework, if this is your maybe six segments, based on what we know and what the opportunities are, like this segment or like, you know, this feature, this opportunity space is the one that we should go big. And yeah. actually all of this in terms of understanding context, meaning, and insight, sometimes it does take more of a leap and that needs to be trained over time, which is something that I've learned from really good creative directors in advertising. Because, you know, mm. to see the titans at work, they're able to synthesize like the signal versus the noise really quickly. And, mm. and you can learn from like that and be amazed by, wow, how did you get to that? Mm, so quickly. Yeah, so let's, let's talk about that. Like you, you spent some time at DDB, uh, you were an advertising planner. And 
what did you learn from advertising that you're still using today as a UX designer? Actually, I went into strategic planner because being like a business major, I went into PNG because that's what every like marketing person wants to do. So I did an internship there. But then I was disappointed that the marketing function and the research function sat separately. But because I wanted to be at the intersection of both, I wanted to both understand users and create the actionable impact. Um, so which is why I went into strategic planning and advertising. And I knew that I wanted to do strategic planning specifically for that reason to bridge insights and strategy. I didn't want to do any other role in advertising. So that's why I went into advertising. I think what I learned from that is firstly to create the brief. So in advertising, there's two briefs. There's the project brief, which the account executives create. And then there's a strategic brief, which us like strategic planners create. What it means is that what the account executives create is directly from the horse's mouth from what the stakeholders say they want. But my job is to find out, okay, this is what the stakeholders say that they want, but this is what they actually need. And this is what they're actually implying. And bringing that to in-house, sometimes stakeholders, they tell you a solution because they'll think it'll shortcut you to get to where they want to go. But then me as a researcher or as someone in a UX space, I'm able to say, okay, you actually wanted something else. This is a better way to get you there. I think one example was that there was this project that the stakeholder said like, okay, just create these like three mockups, um, like hi-fi. But then I think what she actually wanted is to say that, okay, she saw these three as like a representative template. And then how can we create one, but also do a content audit in order to better understand how this one template can be used across the different ones. Is this the one with the hamster example? Oh, no, that's another example. Okay. <laughs> I think in advertising, clients will tell you the most ridiculous things like, I got a great idea. You know what? We need, we need a hamster. And you're like, hmm. <laughs> so you learn not to take what clients say so seriously, but you help them get to what they want at the end of the day, which is their KPIs. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I relate to I relate to this ex- experience from a certain level working as an account servicing person uh, early very very early on in my career where I actually took stakeholder requirements in and crafted it into a brief for the creatives and as I as I look back and as I reflect back I realize that process if it's complete if there is a strategic planner in the process there is a process of analysis of the data over there so I realize in smaller agencies there's a lack of analysis in that process. So without that analysis, without that insight, uh, the creatives actually work with a very rough brief or a very bad brief and actually are not able to deliver on the best ideas in the market. So this this is just me like reflecting uh, back on my advertising career and I just realized, okay, how important research and analysis is as part of the creative process, which is not done sometimes. Right, or many times in, in certain situations. So we, we do have a question that I think is quite related to what we're talking about over here, right? This is someone who has previous academic research experience, uh, familiar with qual and quant methods and analysis, and have been practicing some specific UX research methods and analysis, which is in a case study. So he or she would like to know in your opinion, how does one know whether they are ready to apply for a UX research position? Like, how do you tell? Yeah. Mm, in terms of capable or ready, maybe if we can flip the question a bit, it's more of like, 
what does someone with an academic skill set need to learn in order to transition to UX research? So it's more applicable. I think the key differences is number one, the timelines, number two, the output, number three, the stakeholders. So in terms of the timelines, if uh, academic, academic research is usually like really long timelines that in-house in we don't have the luxury to have, if only we did. So I think what I would be looking for is like, you know, their flexibility to not be so, if I may call it, purist on like what is the ideal scenario, but be able to be like flexible methodologies and to find proxies as needed. You know, it's not about cutting corners. It's about like with this given time and budget, like what is a good enough proxy that would get them, get us the insights and decision we need. So that's the timelines thing. Okay, stakeholders um, and output. So in terms of the output, I think in academic research, we pride ourselves on thoroughness. And by we, sometimes me as a researcher, even like building my own craft, I know I want to be thorough. I know that I have analyzed the results properly. But what stakeholders are looking for, they're like, okay, what's the so what? You know, what's the bottom line? And they maybe need just that, those like five slides. I'm still in the process of working up to it because as a researcher, you would know that we have to synthesize information from the ground up, from like the weeds to get to that level, but they're looking at that level. So it's also about how much we're able to communicate at that level and know what the stakeholder is looking for in order to present it in a way that they're more receptive to it, rather than maybe a fixed method of like, you know, a hundred page report or a hundred deck slide. I think that would be my answer. If, if you show mm. flexibility in that, then yeah, you will be ready. Okay, hope we answered your question, uh, Sana. So I wanted to also ask you a question with regards to something we spoke about previously. So let's talk about the few work that you've done overseas, right? To, uh, as I understand, in your cyber markets, you said you've done work in China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Korea, Singapore, Thailand, and Laos. And you've done visual ethnography, you've done cultural immersion and homestay with the Aborigines. Uh, so you've done actual field work on, on site and you've also done a lot of other, uh, conducted a lot of methods as well. So I, I wanted to just get a sense, you know, like maybe you can share some stories or some things to note when you're doing overseas field work or overseas uh, research work. Mm, yeah, I think firstly, shout out to <laughs> Dr. Carol when I was in university, because when I was in university, I did, I, I did a double major in business and sociology, and he did a course on visual anthropology, which for summer school, which meant that we went overseas to do ethnographic filmmaking. So that was really fun. And I think that got me really interested in it, because it was just a sense of, you know, doing all the academic research and secondary research of papers, but then going into field and being like completely surprised, but in a good way with like what emerges. And I think that's just a very interesting and eye-opening experience. Okay, mm. back to your question. What was it? Uh, yeah, like tell us a story or what, what did you do? Uh, what, what should we take note of if we were to go overseas and do research? I think one key thing is actually to be aware of our positionality and our access. Um, this is especially for more ethnographic research. Because, um, maybe one short story, this is when I was in university, we were going to do documentary filmmaking in southern Thailand. 
so we were supposed to go with my team on a certain day but I just went a couple of days earlier um, as a solo trip to check out another town called Songkla and when I was there by myself um, it's a small fishing town oh yeah what happened was that I was walking at night so I was I was walking alone at night in this um, Thai fishing town and this older lady came up to me and she said hey what are you what are you doing here and I'm like oh I'm just exploring she's like are you alone I'm like yeah she's like you're, you're a woman and you're alone this this place is not safe you should you should not be here and then later she asked oh what are you doing tomorrow do you have any plans if not why don't you come by and I'll take you to the temple right behind my house because I'm going there and this whole conversation happened in Thai because at that time I could speak Thai so and a similar thing happened like a few hours later that night this older woman came to me she said what are you doing this place is not safe you should not be out here at night what are you doing tomorrow night let me take you out for dinner so that got me thinking that you know if I was not a woman if I was not out there at night if I did not speak Thai I would not have access to these um, different experiences and information that these people are more willing to share so I think that's my first point that as an ethnographer we have to be aware of like where we're coming from and what that would mean in terms of the data we collect like I might have access to data but maybe I'm not the best person to do certain types of data. Um, I remember when I was in advertising, my friend said that like someone was running a focus group on condoms and then it was, uh, they had like 13 people in the focus group, all men, and the facilitator was a man and he told me about some of the findings that they found. And I was thinking like, okay, if I ran that focus group, I would not be able to get that level of truthfulness because I'm a woman asking men and they might be, you know, it would be a different sort of, sort of power dynamics. So yeah, I think that's one thing. And I think I think you also mentioned during our conversation that it's also necessary to use perhaps local translators and because that might actually help. Can you explain a little bit more uh, about that and and what what exactly is you know setting up a studio, a pop up studio? Yeah. Um, maybe for for local translators, I would see it as maybe like three different setups right mm. um for for the interpreters firstly we'll, we'll want to work with like sim simultaneous interpreters which are people who can interpret on the spot so imagine that like let's say it's you and me Dalen, and we're sitting like next to each other and then the simultaneous interpreter is sitting in between us and she's translating um as you're saying something she's translating back so that's the case for simultaneous interpreters so there's different levels depending on maybe your comfort with the language or like the setup one extreme is to have humility to say maybe i'm not the person best person to do this research i'm going to outsource this to someone else and then the other extreme is that i do the whole research plan and the interview but then there's a simultaneous interpreter who's interpreting for us um in one setup i had we had that situation where it's the participant um, simultaneous interpreters and researchers. Um, in another situation, my, my colleague could speak Chinese because she was from China. So um, she was the one who was the lead interviewer throughout. But um, I was the one who was the lead, I guess, like lead of the project because I crafted the research plan, the research aims and everything. But she was the one conducting most of the research. Yeah, I think some things to take note of if you're going to be working with a translator, and this is what I've learned from experience, Number one, the best case scenario is to have the same translator throughout so that they're familiar um, and they use the same language. Um, when I was in Korea, we were swapping translators. We had at least four translators swapping in and out. B 
because some of the terms were not translated to the same phrase, it was only later that we realized that they were talking about the same thing, but then they, they might have used a different phrase for it. So that was one thing. Um, I think the second thing is know where the translator is coming from and brief them how you plan to conduct the research, not only in terms of the topic, but how you ask a question. So I remember there was this one time I was doing the research also in Korea with the translator, and I had noted that I wanted in my own notes that I wanted to go deeper into this topic because the, the participant only talked about it like, you know, halfway and I want to go deeper. So I asked it again and I thought I asked it in a different angle so it was like discreet enough but the um, translator turned back to me and she said, oh, the person already answered it and then gave the answer. <laughs> so um, later I had to like, you know, ask and rephrase again but after the interview I said, oh, my intent there was actually to go deeper because blah, 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 blah. Uh, so like sharing with them the method then? Yeah, because maybe mm. the interpreters are just saying like, asking like, why are you asking it again? Like we already have this information. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for sharing. I think that's also like the meat of what we wanted to cover for this specific topic uh, where we're doing research globally. So would you mind explaining, you know, what, what is a pop-up studio and what does it mean in this UX design process? Hmm. Um, I think my learnings from pop-up studios, um, a lot from Yan Chipchase, so you can check out his workshops and his books about that. Uh, I think a pop-up studio is, is going to a, a different market and having the ability to immerse in that space and to have a space for not only research but synthesis and as well as a space for other local guides and fixes to help come in and to improve the thinking in that space. Um, so when we were doing it in my previous company, what happened is that I think number one, the presence of local guides are very important to get you up to seat and to also be the fixer to help set everything up so that when you go there, you can conduct your research more smoothly. I think the second thing is having that physical space where like your whole team is together, where you can live and breathe the research. So what this means is that like we had a war room with like all of the findings on the walls in the typical like post-its on the walls kind of fashion but there is a there is benefit to it because you are seeing all this data like visually and you get a chance to like you know scan it and put things together very easily mm. and just yeah. the ability to even bring stakeholders into the space to say this is what we found um, like this is salient and to synthesize it on a spot it's I think quite a fun thing yeah yeah, and I think that's also like the additional benefit of the spatial immersion on its own, right? Not just the data being in a spatial environment where you're playing with your hands and the walls, but also the fact that they're absorbing information, right? Just being in a space itself. I think that's that's really interesting. We might have been to the same workshop. Uh, not that I recall, I met, I met one of your colleagues that yeah, it's it's that short workshop by, by Jan, right? And he gives you like this really thick book. I think when it comes to overseas research, I do recall one thing, which was the importance of speaking the local language of the people there, right? Like, as I recall, like when I was conducting research in Hong Kong and when I asked someone a question in English, they answer in a certain way. If I ask the same question in, in Cantonese, they answer in a completely different way and bring in like slangs and, and stuff like that. So 
that's yeah that's that's just so much nuance to like something as simple as doing like overseas research and i think uh that that's definitely something do you have a uh, books to recommend or anything like that like we're just trying to answer the topic over here right like if one wants to do research and few work overseas is there a book you would you would recommend people to read um i think i would recommend yan chip chase's book i'll recommend instead is to like if you're planning to conduct it first like learn through experience if you have for example a consultant who has done it before and they can show you the first time then you can get more comfortable to do it subsequent times and that will be a better immersion uh that's what happened mm. with me because we had a consultant come in um with us to do it for the first time in hong kong so we then can that replicate it and improve on that in the other markets yeah did you mean the field study handbook the one that he gave us Yes, he didn't give it to okay. us. He bought it. It's right in front of me as well. Understood. That's awesome. Omar was asking something related. I think this is just great add-on. Uh, Omar asked, "What is good synthesis?" That's a good question, but I think it takes time to train over practice. One thing is that I would say is this this graph about like you know research saturation. So imagine like your learning goes like this and it plateaus. So I think. First, you have to get to that point in your studies that, for in my maybe like ten participants or whatever, I have reached research saturation on this topic. So then it's okay to start to synthesize. If you know that you haven't reached that stage, then maybe you should be doing more research to plug it before you start to synthesize. Yeah. So that's the first thing. Second thing in terms of what makes good synthesis, I, th- <laughs> I think it's when it's very clear and it reaches almost that aha state. It's almost as if like that model or that line was waiting for you all along, and then when you get sure. there, you kind of get like a sigh of relief, like oh, okay, I don't, I don't need to worry at like two a.m. to get there <laughs> anymore. Um, Did you mean like a hidden in plain sight moment? Um, kind of. It's like mm. you know, it's like something is still eating at you, but when you get it, you you can like breathe a sigh of relief. Yeah. Nice. I think okay. that's an internal feeling, but externally, mm. what that w- might look like is that maybe a good synthesis is a really strong insight that has a tension in it that can drive direction. So, mm. okay, an example is maybe non-synthesized work would just be like summaries and bullet points, but then like number one, they don't point to a direction and they're they're not connected. And number two, they they're just data points that are just literally like floating in space. You don't know where to place them. But with the synthesis, you have like a mental model or a framework to know where this is, so that there's a pattern that you can then make sense of it, and you can then use this pattern in different situations because it's to a point where it's replicable and it's like knowledge driving. I think in one of the projects I'm doing now, uh, it was kind of a mixed method. I did a mixed method study where I used like you know competitor analysis. I did digital ethnography, um, like surveys, um, stakeholder interviews, and then I summarized like these are the key behavior groups on this certain product feature. And then when it got to that point, then like people like really caught on to these um, behavioral segments, and they were using some of these terms. You know, months later, they're saying like, "Oh yes, I think I am this behavioral segment as well." So yeah, that's when you reach a good point. Great. I hope we answered your question, Noma. I think now I'll start answering uh, 
asking some of the questions that have been typing in the chat. I'll, I'll say there are two broad categories. Uh, one would be working, right, related to working as a UX researcher. And the other would be actually related to like career stuff. So I'm just going to cover this one. And Dick was asking on, you know, how do you ensure that every corner is covered in a short amount of time as a designer or as a researcher, right? Is, is there like a, a checklist that you use? Because especially when you're working so fast, right? Like, you know, is there like always like some of the things that you always do and check off? When, when you're working super fast? Mm. Um, I think as a product designer, what I will assume is that you already have a project brief. So everyone is on the same page of what's your project aims, metrics, challenges, constraints, resources. So that allows you to work more iteratively at, at speed. So what then I'll need to do is work on the research brief. So for my research brief, I will have like, what are the research aims? What are the initial findings that support it? What are the open questions? What are any hypotheses going in? And then I'll have the discussion, um, the discussion guide that has the key areas that I want to look at. So maybe this is not so much about having all the corners covered, but is to be more intentional and focused to know like, what am I actually trying to get? And then how, how can I test it? I think um, one example is to know the distinction between, for example, testing um, desirability versus testing usability. You can have like one prototype for an app, but as a researcher, um, I'll have a good gauge to say like, okay, you know what? We don't even know if people want this feature in the first place. Therefore, I'm gonna suggest testing desirability and understanding rather than go into usability testing, which will only come later if people like this in the first place. So it's not so much about any corner, every corner, but it's like, what does this need at this time? Generally, it's having the right answers, but as a researcher, I have my research plan. And the research mm. plan will be focused with the research aim areas and questions in order mm. to be more targeted rather than have, you, have every corner. Yeah. Okay, so, got it. Um, but I think in the thing that you said, is there any list that you check off inside you hit it outside, referring to Dick? I think the... Mm. I will also have my own internal framework of like, what is the most risky thing in this product right now that we need to test? Like, is the most risky thing usability? Is the most risky thing like understanding or desirability? And then that's the one that I would test because it's going to make or break the actual product. Yeah. Mm. That's a sound strategy. And uh, we have another question about working. And Majin wanted to ask, you know, when it comes to research outcome, right, versus the design outcome, have you been in a situation where they are actually different? Yeah. Meaning the vision of success for the UX researcher and the UX designer, the output is different. Yeah, I would say that that has been the case. And it also depends on the setup. I would say mm. that um, it depends if it's a project or a product setup. In a project team, what happens is like the researcher will come in during the project as in during the research phase in a more waterfall setup. And then I might come up with recommendations because it's a project, then I would have to like jump off the project to go into another project, you know, to come up with research recommendations. So in that case, like where the recommendations come might be out of my hand and I'm not fully involved in the project. Um, the difference in a product setting is that 
we are the same product team, research, design, data, PM, engineering throughout. So we should be aligned the whole way and working, working together. <laughs> That's why I much prefer working in product teams, to be honest, because the opportunity for success at the end of the day is a lot greater because you're working consultatively and collaboratively with the designer at the end of the day. You have a better working relationship with your designers. Um, you're on the same page to support their work and they in turn support your work. Um, so, yeah. Yep, that's probably more shared vision. So I hope we also answered your question, Praveen and Meijin. And it also sounds like it's a agreeing at, at very least what what is the vision for success, right, on, on both ends. I would like to ask in terms of career now. I think uh, there are some questions with regards to career. How do you UX designers work with the findings UX researchers bring in? What are the things you guys use to communicate? I, I guess what are the artifacts that uh, UX researchers produce and how, how should UX designers use it? <laughs> that sounds like the question. How should UX designers use it? Okay, there's the best practices, or there's the standard way, and there's the second way. It's like how I prefer to do it. <laughs> okay, I think in the standard way, the artifact is usually in a deck or in a written report with like, you know, the executive summary, the key findings, um, and the recommendations. And how the designer would use it is they'll take the recommendations and then like, you know, work on it. Depending on different stages of the design, I think that there's better ways to present the data. For example, if it's usability testing, I would prefer to present it in a Excel sheet that I show like this is like the list of things, this is the severity of like pain point, or this is like the volume of how many people felt it was a pain point, or even if you're measuring task success, then this is task success. So then the designers will have, and the PMs will have a neat list of like these are all the things that I should fix in terms of findings, recommendations, and they can do it. I think nothing beats just having discussions with your designers and just talking through the research and then gelling and coming up with better ideas and better solutions for it. Um, this is why I really love <laughs> my designers. Shout out to the um, Brandon and Alec for being such good peers because whatever I come up with, like firstly, I think they trust that the intent of it is to serve the design. It's not research versus design. We're all on the same page that we want it to be desirable and work. Um, secondly, we're able to like take the artifact and build on the recommendation. So maybe, for example, I would give a recommendation to say like, for example, maybe for this segment, we need a tool for organization of da-da-da-da-da. And then I might give one example, for example, this. But then they can build on it to say, oh, maybe these are better ways to organize it or these are better things. So then they can take it up a notch. And this is like what I really enjoy, this collaborative process that maybe I'll point them to this is the opportunity space, but they will be in a better place to come up with feature solutions um, in order to solve for it. Yeah. I guess uh, when, when it comes to insight and when it comes to artifact, um, how do you know if your artifact is, is working? How do you tell as a user researcher, like you've done your work properly? Yeah. I think when I'm able to share on Slack, like, hey, I have the report, please look at slide three for the executive summary and slide four for the one-pager mental model that summarizes it. 
that's when I know I've synthesized it to a level that this one pager can hold, you know, most of the understandings. So I see the executive summary as like maybe more of like a text or bullet point way to say the overview, but I would have a mental model of maybe these are the segments or these are the needs and pain points that can summarize the whole thing and then they can deep dive into it. Hmm. Okay. Thanks for sharing. Let's do a, a fun question that is not so intense. Uh, so Yingling from Carousel, a UX researcher at Carousel, has a personal question for you. She says you're a volunteer coach at Forest School Singapore. Uh, from your experience, how do you think user research can be done with children? Ooh. <laughs> Firstly, there's a lot of ethics regarding that. So you have to make sure that you sign your NDAs, right? Or you get legal to approve. Um, because for most, a lot of research, we don't conduct it with people under 18 because they'll need like parental consent and everything. So yeah, that's one thing. Secondly, the great thing about children is like, number one, they're brutally honest if they like or they don't like it. And secondly, they're more imaginative than any of us can ever be. Okay, maybe not ever, but then, then most of us adults with our logical brain can be. So there's ways that we can make use of that. They will be really great in co-design sessions. For example, instead of asking them how they feel about something and making it a like, conversational-based thing, what I would recommend is, number one, observe their usage of their current solution of like you know the current state. Observe their usage of your prototype and how they interact with it. And number two, do co-creation sessions with them. By co-creation, I'll, for example, ask like, Okay, if you had a magic wand and you can create anything to allow you all to play together without getting tired or something like that, what would you create? And then I give them like coloring tools, I give them Lego blocks, so just allow them to express it in any means they want. I think this would be a far better solution. Another thing to know about kids is that their own preferences is also very shaped by their social group. So how I interact with this will be very different when how we interact with it in a social scenario with my friends versus with my parents. So I also observe those um, different scenarios when they're interacting as well. Now you make me want to do, <laughs> do more use of research with kids. But yeah. it's, it's an interesting one. We, um, for our UX career accelerator, we actually had the opportunity to do research with kids for this client called Aya. And yeah, they just deal with like very, uh, they deal with kids a lot. So, and, and teenagers. So I think some of the points you mentioned was also something that the team found out uh, as they were doing their research for the very first time. I'd like to ask you like some final questions about uh, career, right? And I think um, if I, uh, if someone wants to prepare a portfolio as a UX researcher, you know, how should they go about doing it? Or is there any example they should, look at uh, when doing so mm, okay assuming that you're not a UX researcher now and you don't have any existing case studies what I recommend is to use the world around you for opportunities for example when I first started getting into UX research I, I started by volunteering with a friend who was doing a like a facilitation job to first find out what it is um, like what does it look like I think the two areas I, I recommend that you can volunteer to help is number one, if there's any like social good companies that you're working with, a social impact space, help them out because these people are so focused on their domain that they might not have the best 
branding or color palette or font or like you know UX design like for example Forest School which I mentioned <laughs> when I told them that I'm a UX researcher at the lunch table then they started like saying like oh my gosh the website is a mess like why are there two menus <laughs> like I cannot find anything um so yeah um then I, I told them they like you know I'm happy to offer my services to help you in any way so that's one avenue the second avenue is your friends so many people are doing their own side projects your own home bakery uh, your own thing I think how I have honed my skills is because I have friends doing that and then I'll say like hey do you want me to give feedback to your site I just did this a couple of weeks ago and I, I told her, then I just like listed it like, hey, I love the concept, but number one, your, your call to action is not very clear. I'm a bit confused because you're using different terms. Like number two, your Instagram tiles and your product tiles look too similar. People are going to get confused and going to click into the wrong place. Number three, and just list it out. And maybe you can even use that to, uh, what you call it, to build on your portfolio. And do you have, say, a specific reference? in terms of a UX researcher's portfolio uh, that you might take reference to? Or do you have your own, I don't know, like publicly available? <laughs> Mine's quite private. Um, I, don't okay. have a, I don't have a good reference at the okay. top of my That's head. Fine. Yeah. Um, uh, but I would say that the main thing is mm. to actually show the case study in terms mm. of, um, for example, the project background, methodology, finding slash insight and impact and then to show for example screenshots or photos of like some of these key ones um, because mm. these the point of these portfolios is to show your thinking the types of experience in your work and what i'll be judging is actually to see their thinking and the critical thinking through it yeah sounds good and uh, i guess a more general question would be you know what is the future of uh, user researchers and Chuning was mentioning in some teams the ratio for UX designer versus UX researcher is like 1 is to 10 or 1 is to 5 or sometimes there's no specialized role in it how do you see this uh, role evolving in, in, the, in the future? Mm. I, I see it as two ways like number one specialization within the team and number two um, growth of methodologies as a UX researcher so firstly, in specialization in a team, I think Singapore is still not as mature in UX design and research. So that's why we have like designers, research, even these other specialties like content strategists and UX writers are not as many. But I think as the industry matures, we're going to see more specialization and people are going to move from being more generalist to specialist as well. Uh, secondly, in terms of the future of user research, how I see it, I don't know how much of this is grounded versus how I hope it is. <laughs> but I think, like, number one, there's more talk about design for ethics, which is really good. But the question is, who's the one in charge of it? Whose responsibility is that? In some cases where we don't have money to hire Tristan Harris to have a <laughs> design philosopher, a tech humanist, I think the user researcher can take up the role and to synthesize or present things with the perspective of how this might look like in terms of long-term, what might be the ethical implications. To do that also would mean take up more different skill sets that we don't traditionally do right now, specifically systems thinking and maybe more like futures or long-terms and organizational design. Uh, this is because I know the limitations in terms of user research is that we look at groups of people as if they're the same, but when people are interacting with each other or when it's a long, a different timeline, it's going to be very different. Like more is not um, the same. 
So this is something that I'm also doing in my own career. I'm picking up systems thinking, not only to future-proof myself, but because I think this is the way it can and probably hopefully will go. Um, that we'll start looking in terms of more like societal impact and long-term considerations of the work that we do. All right. Okay, this is awesome. And thank you so much for attending. Feel free to leave a thank you message. All right, awesome. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please let me know what you think. Get in touch with me over email at mail at curiouscore.com. I would love to hear from you. Do also check out our previous interviews and other free resources at curiouscore.com. And until next time, I'll see you on the next episode. Take care and keep leaning into change.